Welcome to the Maritime Vision Podcast. In each episode, we bring you exclusive interviews with maritime professionals, industry experts, and ambitious students who are making waves in the field. Our guests come from different backgrounds, including shipping, yachting, supply chain, offshore, and more. Our goal is to motivate and empower individuals by giving them the knowledge and resources they need to succeed in the maritime world. Hello everyone, welcome back to a new podcast episode. And today in this episode, we are with Thomas. Welcome Thomas, thank you uh, to be part of this podcast. I'm glad uh, to be here with you. Uh, and I want to ask you a lot of questions uh, regarding your profile and experiences. Uh, firstly, can you uh, introduce yourself and uh, provide some information about your backgrounds, please? Sure, so good morning and thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, my name is Thomas McKenney. I grew up in, close to Boston in the United States. I have a PhD in Naval Architecture and Marine Engineering from the University of Michigan. And most of my career has actually been in the cruise industry where I've been working as a technical and project manager at Royal Caribbean Group. So both in the headquarters in Miami, but also uh, in France at Chantier de l'Antique Shipyard in Saint-Nazaire, where I was overseeing the design and construction of a first-in-class new build vessel for celebrity cruises. But now I'm currently head of ship design at the Merce McKinney Muller Center for Zero Carbon Shipping based in Copenhagen, where I'm leading ship design and integration activities. Okay, very interesting. So why did, why did you choose to, to work in the maritime industry? Yeah, so I grew up sailing on the lakes of New Hampshire during my summers. And also uh, my family went on some cruise vacations as well when I was younger. And so this exposure, it sparked an interest, but I didn't actually think you could make money and have a career designing and building these vessels. So that happened a little later when I was around 15 years old. I took this career quiz where you could like answer some questions and then it tells you what professions you could be interested in. And then Naval Architect popped up and I said, yeah, that sounds sounds good to me. <laughs> well, interesting. So now you worked your almost your, your entire uh, life in this uh, industry. I mean, yes. Okay. On uh, absence, of course, you work uh, with Maersk uh, in the zero carbon uh, center. Can you explain a little bit what is it? Because it's not a company; it's an organization. So, yeah, can you clarify this, please? Yeah, exactly. It's it's important to say that we are independent from uh, Maersk, the the shipping company. Uh, however, we were. Uh, founded with a very uh, substantial donation from the AP Muller Foundation. Uh, and, and we are, I, for the sake of this conversation, we can just call it the center. So the full name is the Merce McKinney Muller Center for Zero Carbon Shipping, but the center is easier for our sake, I think. And, and we are an independent not-for-profit research and development center. And our vision is to sustainably decarbonize the maritime industry by 2050. Okay. So that's the complete goal. This is the only goal of the, this association or do you have other challenges? So we, first of all, we, we do emphasize that we want to do this transition sustainably. So it's not decarbonization at all costs, but safe and just transition. So this includes considerations like seafarer, welfare, skill development, health and safety and equity. Uh, and as part of our strategic objectives, we have three main ones. One is to set the course for the industry to transition. Uh, we also drive a number of research and development uh, activities. And then finally, we do have an advocacy 
part of our work, which is both for industry action, but also for regulation. Okay. Okay. It's, it's what you do uh, in this uh, organization. Yes. And we have, we have strategic partners as well, which are from kind of across the mar maritime ecosystem. So we have 24 strategic partners and we, we have a unique model in the sense that we don't just ask them for money and then we go off and do things. We, we ask for their people and, and these people from our partners, they're called secondees and they come to the center and they work with us. Like we're one team, uh, to address these challenges. Okay. Um, this uh, organization was created uh, w when it was created? It, it's quite recent. Uh, we started activities uh, in 2020 and ramping up really in 2021. So we're still quite new, but we've gone from zero people to, uh, if you include our secondees, we have over 120 people now as part of the organization. So it's grown quite a lot over the, you know, two, two to three years now. Okay. And in terms of visibility, uh, is it like uh, most of, it's like North, Northern Europe or it's, it's like global in the world? It's global. So we have partners uh, from Europe, of course, but also uh, from Asia, mainly in Japan, as well as in the United States and, and Canada. So we do span across the globe. Okay. Okay. Interesting. But uh, most of your activity is uh, in the North Europe, I imagine, because this is where you, we build many sustainable ships, uh, I imagine. Yeah, we our headquarters, of course, is in Copenhagen. So we, we do try to have a lot of our activities based in Copenhagen, but our projects are, are global. So some are European funded. Others are, uh, you know, in kind projects where we engage, uh, you know, globally. So we are a global center in the end. Okay. 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 Very interesting. So, uh, on, I want now to, uh, ask you uh, more about your experience as project manager. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you describe a little bit this experience on what kind of project did you work on? Yeah. So let me start by saying that. There's multiple pathways. If, if you're a naval architect out there and you're trying to decide kind of which career to go, one approach is you could specialize, right? You could become an expert at hydrodynamics or structures or stability. The other approach, the one that I took, um, is more of a generalist approach where uh, you have a broad understanding of the specialties, but you're instead responsible for the overall ship design process and and your ultimate goal is to ensure that you have an overall optimal design and this is pretty much a project manager role so in addition to being able to kind of ask the right questions or understand how design aspects are connected to each other you also need to know how to plan a project engage mm. the right stakeholders and deliver on time and on budget okay but as a naval architect i, I mean like project manager is it's part of the, it's not uh, the, the, the same job, but it helps a lot, I imagine. Because I've seen many project managers, they don't have experience as naval architect. Is it possible? Oh. Yeah, of course, you know, good project managers are good project managers. However, when you, when you have a ship design project, uh, at least with, with my own experience in the industries that I'm in, uh, if, if you have that, that kind of generalist naval architecture background and you're designing your project manager of a ship project, especially these large ones, 
Um, for example, at Royal Caribbean, I was working, you know, as a technical and project manager of a billion dollar project. So these ship projects are, you know, are massive mm. with, you know, so many groups of people and stakeholders, you have brand, you have architects, the shipyard. And, and so you have to have that technical understanding and, but also the ability to engage. So. I'm a technical person, but also I need to explain to an architect why we can't remove the pillar that's in the middle of their room or or work with them to, you know, route the AC ducting. So there's a lot of this type of work that, uh, you know, as a technical project manager, as a project manager on a ship design project, you, you benefit from that background. Okay. Your, your experience was more in commercial shipping or you think for So mostly in the cruise industry where we were designing large vessels. So these are, you know, we're talking 300 meter long, over 100,000 gross ton vessels. Uh, so uh, I'd say large cruise ships, but also with my work at the center, I do almost entirely uh, commercial shipping. So container ships, bulk carriers, tankers, Are, are really the main focus uh, for me at the center because those are the largest uh, segments, right? That have the, the largest impact on emissions of, of the overall industry. Okay, okay. And I just want to ask you another question about your experience. I mean, as project manager, what is the most complicated part of the job? It can be very interesting for people who want to, to make this job actually. I'd say the the most interesting and challenging aspect for me, especially on these larger complex ship designs, is engaging the right people at the right time. So it's it's not necessarily you know I am an expert at steel structure or you know the hydrodynamics of you know the hull form optimization, but it is a lot of stakeholder management and and I think if you're able to develop those skills along with you know, a strong technical background where you know how to ask the right questions and challenge the shipyards or challenge the team, uh, you know, as part of the process. Uh, I think that's really key to success in, in these types of projects. Okay. Okay. Very interesting to, to know, actually, for people who want to make a, uh, this job, actually. But now uh, let's talk about the main topic, which is sustainability. Uh, and I want to ask you, you know, the European Union has the, this target to be completely neutral by 2050. So firstly, do you believe on it? And secondly, what is your opinion about it? Yes, so I, I, I believe it is possible. And, and that's also the, the purpose here at the centers to show that it is possible and, 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 and kind of outline what needs to happen for that. The European Union, of course, have their own targets, but also there's been recent developments and the outcome of the International Maritime Organization, uh, IMO's uh, MEPC 80 meeting where they updated the greenhouse gas strategy. And this, this was to align now with net zero in 2050, but also setting uh, quite um, ambitious, not fully aligned with the Paris 1.5 degree Uh, you know, trajectory, but significant absolute emission reductions in 2030. So 20 to 30% absolute emission reductions relative to the baseline IMO uses. Uh, and, and in 2040, 70 to 80%. So this mm. has been set. And, and as part of this, what will come later are technical and economic 
midterm measures. So this will be a global fuel standard or greenhouse gas pricing. And so it is possible. And, and at the center, we, we try to divide it up into four main areas to, to kind of simplify it. And, and these are things that need to happen this decade to, to get on that track. First of all, we need to elevate onboard energy efficiency. This is key. Uh, this is the good place to start. And there's a lot of opportunity here. Next, we need to enable alternative fuel pathways, fuel pathways like methane, methanol, ammonia, bio oils. We need regulation policy and commitments. So this is part of that um, kind of advocacy work we do also is to promote this. And then we also need to support the people that are you know, going first, that are taking the chances. They're on kind of the bleeding edge of, of, uh, um, of the innovation space and being the first movers and fast followers. So we need to support them as well. And so it's not easy. I, I won't say it's easy. Uh, it requires fundamental changes in how we do things today, but it is possible. Okay. It's good. It's good to be optimistic. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> yes, because you know I talk I talk with many people, and some people say it's it would be very complicated. But I noticed it. Most of them, you know, are more focused uh, live lives in you know in Asia, not in Europe. Um, in the world, is it true that Europe is like? more ambitious about sustainability for the maritime industry than other continents? Well, I think you can see that they're clearly a front runner with the regulations that they've already been implementing. So if you look at their own targets and also they do have their own fuel standard now, Fuel EU, and then they have the emission trading scheme coming in, these economic measures. So in terms of action, yes, I think they are a front runner. But keep in mind that at the MEPC 80, you know, this is an international organization that works based off of consensus, which means that everyone has to agree right. on what what is, uh, you know, done there. And so globally there, you know, everyone had to support this update to the strategy. And that includes, you know, Asia, it includes Africa, it includes North America, it includes all, you know, the whole world. So. Uh, I think, yes, Europe's maybe front running here, but also you see action in the United States, for example, with um, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is you know heavily subsidizing and, and um, giving credits to fuel production, you know, hydrogen based uh, renewable uh, fuel production as well, uh, and also carbon capture. So we see things in multiple areas. I would say Europe definitely front runner, US recently um making a big push as well but but there is also kind of this baseline general global support in the background okay it's it's good to know okay i didn't know about it um but now uh, more about you as a chief designer so your role in this organization how can you contribute uh to decarbonize the maritime industry yes what the center my kind of like the tagline of of my group my ship design group is is really what we do is we develop these innovative ship designs to help the maritime industry decarbonize. But how this contributes to decarbonization efforts is first of all, it enables the alternative fuel pathways. So this is by demonstrating that you can design, for example, an ammonia fueled vessel, and then that can be used by these first movers, but also contributing to the development of ship rules and regulations. So we can both 
demonstrate to regulators that ships can be designed, but also we can identify the impact of rules and regulations. And this really helps because when you're a regulator and you're trying to figure out how to regulate something, you're also looking at kind of what level or limits should I set? And that's where you need to have input on technical impacts, you know, feasibility technically, but also financially. So, and I think more generally, naval architects out there should, um, should really be thinking about onboard energy efficiency and potential incorporation of alternative fuels when they're designing ships. It's, it's really the designer's responsibility to present those options and the impacts to the ship owner or the, the company they work for based on you know, the approach uh, to decarbonization that that company or ship owner's taking. That could either be a pure regulatory compliance approach, like I'm gonna do the bare minimum, or it could be a company target where they are more ambitious, for example. Okay. And is it uh, is quite easy? I mean, the demand, is it very high for sustainable shipping? Or, you know, the, many ship owners just want efficient ship. They don't care about, they don't care about in, uh, sustainability. It really depends. I think all of them have to be aware of these regulations upcoming related to sustainability, which can impact their business. So I think all of them are thinking about it, but maybe in different ways. Some are thinking, you know, how will this affect my business while mm. still trying to maintain, you know, as much profitability as I can for my, for my company, while others are being kind of on the front or leading edge saying, you know, we need, it's more than just you know, returning money to our shareholders. It's actually about the greater good and sustainability and the benefits associated with it are driving me to have, you know, more ambitious goals. So it is a mix, but I would say a majority of companies are not leading, going beyond kind of the, the bare minimum right now. Uh, and so I think that, you know, education about what really will the impacts be for their operations is important and in, in understanding that and, and naval architects have a role in that. Mm. Okay. Okay. I've seen now you, you are working on this project, uh, NAS, no gaps uh, project. Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and I really want you to talk about it because I mean, I have never seen this technology uh, on when I've seen the, the video about it, it was actually quite interesting, but quite technical. So can yeah. you explain please Thomas? Yeah, let me start by giving just kind of a fly into the ammonia fuel pathway, because this pathway is, is the least mature uh, out of the four that we consider at the center, which is also why we, uh, you know, do, do a lot of our, our, a lot of our current effort is based uh, around the ammonia pathway to try to unlock it. And, and maybe just starting with why ammonia and, and with ammonia, the important thing, there's a few important aspects which make it interesting. One is it doesn't require carbon for production and it doesn't generate CO2 under combustion. So ammonia from a molecular point of view is just NH3. So there's no carbon in that. Uh, there is some pilot fuel that you need to like ignite ammonia because it's not easily ignitable or combustible. Um, and if that is fossil based fuel, then of course there will be some emissions, but generally uh, the molecule itself doesn't have CO2, then it can be produced and, and, ha and in large quantities. And it's all, ammonia is already being used 
uh, in industries, in chemical industry, for example, ammonia, almost, eight, I think 80% of ammonia goes into fertilizer for, you know, growing of, uh, for agricultural purposes. And it's been transported on cargo vessels onboard uh, gas carriers for, for decades. There's also the interesting part is that blue ammonia, where you uh, use natural gas as the feedstock, but you're capturing the carbon dioxide emissions uh, during production. This is a, a low emission pathway that can be used early in the transition because the biggest challenge for uh, green or renewable electricity is that you need that renew, uh, green or renewable ammonia is that you need that electricity, that, that clean, uh, you know, renewable electricity from wind or solar, for example. And so until you have kind of full scale up of that availability and price, blue ammonia could be a viable pathway. So that being said, at the same time, ammonia is not the best or only pathway. So we're transitioning to a world where there will be multiple solutions and it will depend on your specific case. Uh, but to mature the ammonia pathway, you know, there's no vessels currently operating with ammonia as a fuel out there. So we're really at the front end of the innovation process here. And whenever you're innovating like this, um, there's not one person or company that has all the knowledge. And that's why no gaps is, is kind of an important project because it kind of brings together all of the key stakeholders and, and what NOGAP stand for is it's, it's a Nordic green ammonia powered ships. And this is a consortium of, uh, of companies, including ourselves, who we are leading the design efforts at the center, but also it includes a ship owner, a charter, a classification society, flag and uh, engine and, and uh, system providers. And, and this is a ship, it's an ammonia fueled uh, gas carrier. So it carries ammonia also as a cargo okay. and it's operating between the U S uh, the Gulf of Mexico up into to Northern Europe. And so, um, this process, the design process overall has kind of gone through, uh, an initial phase here where you have the feasibility, you have a risk assessment and also different types of analyses like health form optimization, energy efficiency, gas dispersion, uh, and, and so in June, we kind of made a pretty big milestone where we achieved an approval in principle from DNV. What this is, is just kind of a, a statement that the design is feasible and that there's no major showstoppers. So from here, it's, it's really going to reality. So now the next step is to commercialize the vessel and that we are working with a few select partners on at the moment. Okay, and I have a question. Uh, you know, uh, so you need to build this new ship, but is it possible to convert um, current fleet into ammonia, or it's too complicated? You need to adapt everything on board. It can be done, uh, and and we've done some work at the center on uh, what the impact of uh, fuel conversions are. Uh, with ammonia, you have to consider a few things. First of all, the engine, but but the more complicated thing is actually the the tank the, the fuel tank storage because for ammonia you either need to store it kind of pressurized uh you know in a in kind of a cylindrical tank or you need to refrigerate it um uh to like negative 33 degrees celsius so mm. you need special tank systems and these tank systems are not are not part of conventional vessels uh, that carry fuel oil so probably 50% of your total costs will come from these tank systems. And then 
when you do a conversion, you need to figure out where to put it because the energy density of ammonia is different than uh, fuel. So you need almost three times as much space for the same amount of energy. And, and so from a naval architecture perspective, you need to figure out where to put that. And of course, you don't want to impact your cargo because that, that's significant. So you, you ideally want to find other solutions. So there's quite a lot of challenges around conversion, but it's not impossible. And, and we see some conversions happening now on uh, use of methanol as a fuel, for example, uh, with container vessels and, and others. Okay, very interesting. Uh, it's, it's quite close actually to hydrogen. I mean, uh, the the fact that uh, oh, you you stop this energy on, I, I imagine, it's it's a biofuel actually. Actually, yeah. Hi, you mean hi, hydrogen as a fuel? Yeah, I mean the comparison of hydrogen on ammonia. Yeah. So hydrogen is requires even even more uh, in terms of volume. From uh, if you're storing it either compressed or liquefied, uh, and also hydrogen to be stored liquefied requires cryogenic. So, so you need to store it very, very cold, much cooler compared to ammonia. Um, and then when you compare the, the two fuels, you also have to look at the kind of the safety risks around the, the fuels being stored. So with ammonia, it's a highly toxic. So you have kind of that safety concern. Um, but for hydrogen, you also have, you know, the explosive nature of that you have kind of a wide range where it has explosive properties. Uh, so each fuel kind of has its own challenges, you could say when it comes to integrating them on a ship. Okay, okay. Okay, good to know. Because we have so many technologies right now. Yeah. On every year we have news. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite, uh, but we will come back to this question of uh, the different technologies. But first, I want to ask you uh, more about your, the job again. Okay, what advice can you give to naval architect? How can they, they can incorporate this uh, sustainability into ship design, etc.? Yeah, so we do have to keep in mind that naval architecture has been taught a certain way, and and aspects that naval architects have had to consider in the recent history it's been quite stable for a while, meaning that in the, in the early 1900s, when the internal combustion engine was was invented and then uh, commercialized and, and available, that was introduced along with the ability to also use heavy fuel oil. And so heavy fuel oil is now the dominant fuel with worldwide availability. And the two-stroke diesel engine is, is, is the dominant uh, prime mover. So there's been quite a while where from a design perspective, it's not, there were not so many options because it made sense. You, you know, you have fuel oil, you have engines, but today we're no longer talking about one fuel, one technology. We're talking about a future with multiple solutions and this will change how naval architects work and also how they need to be educated and trained. So good naval architects and project managers, um, you know, will we'll need to understand these but also go beyond just decarbonization to understand sustainability because sustainability is not just decarbonization. There's a lot of other aspects related to that. And, and so, for example, if you look at ammonia, you need to carefully consider the human factor side and also societal risks around, you know, operating with vessels with ammonia. And so how would you incorporate Environmental sustainability, well, you know, it all starts with defining the requirements for your vessel. So 
what is the emission reduction target? What's your cargo? Mm. What type of operation do you expect? And from there, you can kind of map out the design space of solutions to evaluate and select. So I think that's kind of how you have to think about it now as as a naval architect, you know, options, multiple options and evaluating those based on your requirements. Okay, okay, okay. Very, very uh, good to know, especially for people uh, in this field. Um, I want now to talk about the technologies. We have so many of them. We already talked about uh, Ammonia and uh, for you. So, of course, you will defend your technology you, you work on, but what do you think about wind, solar energy batteries? Do you think when it, we, many people focus only on one kind of uh, technology, but we need to be more open-minded? What, what is your opinion about it? Yeah, I think just building off of what I said earlier, I think there we will not live in a world where there's just one fuel and one technology. So I think we need to accept that, first of all, meaning that there will not be one winner. So a lot of people ask us, you know, what, what, which fuel will it be, right? Which fuel will be the one, you know, of the future? And, and my answer is that there will not be just one fuel. There's going to be multiple fuels. Now there's going to be regional situations and dynamics. There's going to be, you know, specific vessel types, routes and sizes that will, that will do different things. And uh, it's going to be more customized, more specific. So uh, there's not one vet, one fuel that's best. So I will not say ammonia is best. I think that there's a lot of solutions and, and this complicates things, right? Uh, yeah. But if you're talking about what technologies or fuels can be used and you have to also look at the timeline because 2050 is very far away. Um, if you look at, you know, this decade, so within the next, you know, seven years, 10 years, then there are technologies and solutions that can be uh, already used today that are realistic and also able to be scaled. So most importantly, I want to emphasize energy efficiency, energy saving devices and operational measures, things like even wind assisted propulsion, for example, you know, that has potential and is commercially available today. It's not widely deployed. Um, so there are a lot of energy saving devices that I would say are no brainers that you should do already. And then as you look towards the initial scaling of alternative fuels, fuels like biomethane and biomethanol, uh, and some of these liquid biofuels like, um, biodiesels, fame, HVO, they will play a role. And then ammonia might come a little later in this decade. Uh, with kind of the production of blue ammonia potentially and also some green. And, but but after this decade, you, with the scaling of the alternative fuels kind of going uh, more increased uh, or increasing over, over time, it becomes more of a discussion on number of vessels, fuel supply. And then there is a role for game changers and novel technologies. A good example is commercial nuclear propulsion. So could that play a role and when? I don't see that as something that could play a role in 10, within 10 years, but maybe towards the latter part of the transition, we see this game-changing technology and demonstration on board where it, it really could make sense. And, and so I think there's a lot of technologies, uh, there's a lot of solutions, you know, batteries um, already can play a role from an energy efficiency perspective. And then if you're able to electrify, you know, shorter sea, uh, 
uh, solutions uh, or vessels and operations with direct electrification, it makes a lot of sense. So I think those are kind of, we have to think of it as a solution space, not as kind of one winning technology or, or fuel. So you are not like only on one technology, you mean like open to everything? Because, yeah, I mean, like, for example, if you take in, in comparison, the automotive industry, it's always about uh, electric car. People only focus on that. I, did, I, I don't see a lot of projects about other alternatives. But when you take into account the maritime industry, you can be completely lost because you have, for example, Mars launched the first methanol vessel. You have other uh, companies that develop uh, sailing cargoes. Uh, say, uh, other projects want to work on uh, nuclear ships. So you can be completely lost if, for example, for a young startup want to, to, you know, to launch new type of sustainable vessel. They don't know what kind of technology work, uh, they can develop, I mean, because we don't have direction about it. It can be quite hard in the industry. Yes, I think it also has to do with feasibility. So in the automotive industry, for example, you can, it's possible to directly electrify almost all cars and trucks. And okay, there yeah. could be some exceptions for some heavy, heavy, heavy duty uh, applications. The challenge with shipping is that it's a hard to abate sector in the sense that you cannot directly electrify all, all operations. Of course, if you can directly electrify operations, it makes a lot of sense because if you need to make these alternative fuels, you lose so much efficiency along the way. You know, you're pretty much cutting that, you know, you're, you need 50%, uh, you know, your 50% efficiency loss, right, from the energy you have as electricity down to the, to the fuel. And so uh, you want to do that, but the challenge is you're not able to based on how ships are operating and then what that means is that you need another energy source. So that means fuels pretty much for these deep sea ocean going. And then when you talk about what fuel, if you look at it from a total cost of ownership perspective, it's really going to depend on your specific vessel, how it operates and the region it operates, because we also see a distribution of where the fuels will be produced. And that will depend a lot on availability of renewable electricity, it will depend on feedstocks like where is natural gas for blue ammonia, where are, are you getting biomass, right? Because, you know, bio to make biomethane from biogas, um, you need certain situation, you, you know, there's certain situations where you can place uh, biogas facilities uh, and, and typically they're close, they're, they're kind of more spread apart. They're not large scale production facilities. So all of these dynamics are leading to a complicated situation, uh, which there's no clear global answer to. Now there is optimal answers for your specific operation, but then you need to talk more about a ship type, you know, operating on a route in a certain area. Yeah. So now you can see how old is our industry because everything now is new on every, we, we have like in 50 years to make completely to make big change in the industry. So yeah, I, I really like to compare the automotive industry with the maritime industry because I mean, for, it's technically it's quite, I mean, the same challenges, but we still, uh, but it, I think maritime is still very interesting because you can touch for with every kind of technologies and that's why I wanted to ask you about how can we have this direction about we, which one to choose uh, but yeah, you, you answer very well. 
Uh, and now I want to uh, ask you a question uh, about more specifically about uh, the job. Uh, can you collaborate with other professionals if you want to build sustainable ship? Oh, it works a little bit. Yes, of course. Yeah, collaboration is really key. Uh, this is also the core of what we do at the center. Uh, and especially when you have new ideas or concepts, you know, you really need to engage multiple people. You can't, you, you don't have all that knowledge in, in a single person or company, as I mentioned earlier. A good, you know, a good example of this is when you're designing an ammonia-fueled vessel, uh, you know, while you do have some experience transporting ammonia as a, as a cargo, there's limited knowledge in shipping on how to handle or operate ammonia more actively as a fuel. And so to better understand that, we partnered and collaborated with chemical companies. So fuel producers, chemical companies and fuel producers like CF Industries in the United States, uh, Yara Clean Ammonia. And when you start up a project, this stakeholder mapping needs to be done to to understand, you know, what competencies do you have and gain. And then from here, partnering and collaborating is is more about you know that you share the same vision and objective to to take you know to, towards a, towards a common goal so uh collaboration is key and and it gets a little complicated right it's it's messy sometimes because you have so many people with different viewpoints coming in but if you can figure out how to connect everything and link it all together um that uh, collaboration really is 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 coming out with a better product in the end. Okay, okay, yes, because it's crucial. I mean, the collaboration. Without it, we cannot we can't. I mean, achieve any goals in the in the maritime industry. Yeah. Um, and can you discuss a little bit uh, in your I mean your daily jobs? Uh, any news? Any advancement technologies you use? Uh, or trends? Interesting. I mean, do you have some insight about it? About what type of tools we use, or uh... in new type of tools, new I mean technologies, AI, for example, or these kind of things. Yeah, within I, I mean I th I think there's some general trends, macro trends that that are starting to be incorporated into how we work and and also uh, how we design ships and the ships themselves. I think digitalization is clearly an area where we see a lot of potential and also uh, in the way that we design ships, but also how we operate them. Uh, we also see kind of automation as, as, a, as an area where it will affect both uh, ship operation as well as how we design ships. And then artificial intelligence is coming and, mm. and that will impact, I think as well, how we design ships in the ships themselves. So, uh, I think we have these macro trends that are that are also coming, which are somewhat separate from sustainability, but of course need to be integrated into overall how how we work and, and the way we work. There's also new ways of, of doing analysis. So when we look at evaluating risks, so if you're evaluating like a risk to crew on board, uh, you know, of injury or death, that there's there's tools on how to do that. So you can use quantitative risk assessment, you can mm -hmm. use gas dispersion analysis to evaluate those and to understand how your design um, can impact crew, but also uh, communities where vessels operate. So if there is you know, an emergency situation or an incident where you have a, 
a potential leakage or release uh, of ammonia as an example, uh, then you, we understand how that will propagate and the risk contours associated with that. So there are a lot of new tools, uh, digital tools and, and analyses, meth analysis methods that we are using here uh, as we try to address some of these challenges with new technologies and fuels. Okay, 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 good to know. And I want to ask you the last question, uh, of course, can you give one advice to someone who wants to start in the maritime industry? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I have a few thoughts. Uh, I think, and this is kind of building off of my own experiences, but I think you need to try as many different experiences early on in your career, both through maybe internships while you're at school, but also after. And this doesn't mean that you need to change jobs frequently because, you know, I worked at Royal Caribbean for over eight, eight years and I had the opportunity to experience so many different aspects of the cruise industry. I think traveling abroad, understanding how other cultures and people live and work, this will make you a better person, but also a professional. You know, diversity really uh, enhances innovative thinking and, and development. And so uh, working with different types of people, people that you didn't grow up with, I think try to put, put yourself in those positions and don't be afraid to accept a position or a task because you don't know how to do it. I, I, I think you'll figure it out and you'll learn a lot along the way. And, and you also have people that can help you, mentors or people you can ask. So you need to step outside your comfort zone a little bit to, to continue to grow. And, and so just, I don't know, those, those are at least my main takeaways from yeah, good. <laughs> my limited career so far. Yeah, that's nice. Okay, very, very good. Uh, I take the influence for myself. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, still, I'm still young, and I, I am. Um, I will finish my studies uh, next year, so I still have. I need to gain experience. So yeah. So do do you want to add something, or did you say everything you want? <laughs> no, I I think uh, it was a really really good discussion, and and for for me. Uh, uh, naval architecture is an exciting area, uh, especially now, as I mentioned earlier, there's, you know, there's so many uh, new things coming to the industry and the naval architecture role will be important uh, within shipping and, and ship design. Uh, and so it is an exciting area that, that I think, um, yeah, if you're interested, look more into. And also, I'm happy to to talk with anyone that uh, is interested in, in learning more as well. Yeah, actually, uh, for the little story, I've seen your profile on LinkedIn. On uh, you have this big sentence in your profile. It's very clear what you do. And I said, wow, I think I really need Thomas to make an episode with him because it's exactly the challenge we have right now in the industry. And he has very good position on it. So yeah, thank you to accept this invitation. It means Thanks a lot. For yeah, thank you, and you bring many values. I wish you all the best. Thanks, you and, too. Uh, see you around, maybe in the industry, uh, maybe in Copenhagen, I don't know. <laughs> Sounds good. Let me know if you're here. Yeah. Okay, right. thank you. Bye. Perfect. Thank you for listening and watching this episode. We are looking forward to bring you more inspiring stories from maritime professionals, experts, and students. Do not hesitate to leave a review on Apple Podcast and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Your support means a lot to us and it greatly helps in our continuous growth. We committed to bringing you more exciting episodes with passionate guests.